You're listening to Catalyst Talks, conversations with change agents, outliers, superheroes, and truly conscious leaders modeling what it is to be an unstoppable force for good in this world. What lit these catalysts on fire to do their work, and what nuggets of wisdom can they share with the world literally on fire? The whole idea of Catalyst Talks and these conversations is to understand how these leaders have approached being on the leading edge of their truth, how did they uncover their purpose, and what does it really take to catalyze change and at scale? I'm your host, Stephanie Traeger. I'm a consciousness catalyst and soul coach to superstar change agents in business, leadership, and life. On this podcast, I wear an eclectic mix of hats, including earthkeeper, healer, coach, lawyer, business, and higher purpose strategist. My intention is holding space for higher purpose, peak wellness, and soul mastery so we can live in harmony with ourselves, each other, and nature. I'm here to awaken consciousness on this planet, unlock higher purpose, and learn what it really takes to catalyze change and at scale. My guest today on Catalyst Talks podcast is Stephen Donziger. He is a human rights lawyer who is on his 525th day of house detention. He's a political prisoner because he won a $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron for an environmental catastrophe they caused or their uh, predecessor Texaco caused in the Amazon, which impacted indigenous and farmer communities in this beautiful area of the Ecuadorian Amazon, which is now an area where cancer rates are soaring, people are dying, health ailments are all related to massive oil pollution caused by and intentionally caused by Texaco, now owned by Chevron. And when I say caused by, there is evidence of this because Stephen spent more than 10 years on a case seeking the evidence, and they actually won a $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron. While Stephen was spending his time traveling to different countries to enforce the judgment that Chevron refused to pay, and the judgment of this $9.5 billion was to help the communities clean up the environmental damage. And they have avoided at all costs any responsibility or any acknowledgement that there is a judgment on them for $9.5 billion. And this is how extractive industries get to be the predators on this planet. They take no responsibility. They don't have to. If a $9.5 billion judgment was arrived at in a New York court, how is it possible that they get to evade justice for years and years and years? And so while Stephen has spent so long seeking ways to enforce this judgment, Chevron turned around and filed a slap suit. A slap suit is a strategic litigation against public participation. What that means is it is meant to silence the activists, the people who are taking on large corporate interests. It's a huge area of law where companies get or entities get to really challenge people's First Amendment rights. And that is where Stephen is right now. He's under house arrest. He has a ankle bracelet. This is a Harvard lawyer with a good reputation. He follows the law. He's following procedure year after year, 525 days into home detention with an ankle bracelet on his ankle. And he's not allowed to go anywhere. And he's lost his law license. And all of these things happen because of a very strategic and targeted focus by Chevron to demonize Stephen Donziger. And they have created a false narrative. They've paid witnesses in Ecuador millions of dollars to lie on the stand who have admitted afterwards to lying. 
And yet still, Stephen is under house arrest. He is in a judicial system that is demonstrating massive corruption. Two judges, Judge Prescott and Judge Kaplan, are demonstrating absolute judicial corruption as they have appointed a private prosecutor. You're going to hear all of this. You're going to hear Stephen talk about all of this. But they've appointed a private prosecutor, basically, which is usually the state's job, but the state wouldn't do it. So they have a private law firm with Chevron as a client who is prosecuting Stephen in criminal court for something that is not even a crime. (laughs) So this is a story you must hear. This is a friend of mine who I implore you to listen to the July interview we did. This was months and months ago. Who would have thought that he would still be under house arrest, especially during a pandemic when where's he going? You know, it's it's a really, really screwed up situation. I've gotten more deeply involved since the last episode with Stephen and his case. And it is, it is just, it reeks in every way, shape and form. And the way for us to help Stephen, because Stephen is not just one person. He represents all environmental justice defenders. He represents all human rights defenders. And in order to support him and the future of our ability to actually fight against or really fight isn't even the right word, but to even like seek responsibility from extractive industries that are killing our planet. When we talk about climate change, we talk about the Green New Deal, and we talk about all these lofty expectations, and yet we ignore the fact that there's this person who represents somebody who is winning against one of the largest polluters on the planet, and yet he's being demonized and locked up. And so our public support is hugely important. Please listen to this. Please share it. Please listen to the July episode and share that. And please go to donzigerdefense.com and do what you can to support Stephen. And if not, just sign up and keep abreast of this case because it is the clearest demonstration of judicial misconduct. And this is in a federal court in New York City. As you can hear, I'm passionate about this issue because it represents a lot more than just my friend Stephen under house arrest, which is bad enough. But being a political prisoner in these times is is a scary prospect. So I encourage you to have a listen and uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for your your presence here with us. And feel free to reach out at any time. Check the show notes. Learn all about Stephen. He is an incredible human. He's done a lot of really great work, and we need him on the front lines. So please have a listen. Thank you. Hello, and welcome back to Catalyst Talks podcast. I am so grateful to have Steven Zonziger as my guest again. He is back after about seven months. He was on the show in the summer, and it is now January of the next year. And the last time Steven was on the show, he shared his story about his lawsuit against Chevron and how he won a $9.5 billion judgment against Chevron for polluting, contaminating, and basically ruining the lives of indigenous people and and rural farmers in the Amazon and Ecuador. And here we are today. Stephen is still under house arrest. He shared with us on the episode in the summer about being under house arrest. Who would have thought you are still under house arrest? Please give us an update, Stephen. Welcome back to the show. Thanks for being here. We want to know what the heck is going on with your case. Well, thank you, Stephanie. I appreciate it. Um, Yeah, I'm still under house arrest. Today is day 524. It's been more than 17 months. You know, it's a misdemeanor case with the maximum six months of prison if I were to be convicted, but I haven't had a trial yet. And, you know, since I was last on your show, I've learned that I'm the only person in the entire federal system charged with a misdemeanor who's being held pre-trial and on detention. There's no one else being held even for one day, much less, you know, over 500 days. 
So it's concerning on, on a deep level. It's very concerning. It's scary and it's tough to deal with. But, you know, as I said last time, you know, I and my son, my 14 year old son, Matthew, my wife, Laura, were resilient and, you know, we're determined to get through this. It's just, it would help though, if I were to be treated neutrally and fairly by the federal judges who seem to be targeting me, but I have a great legal team and, and we're hopeful we'll get through this. So last time on the show, I think you shared about two prosecutors, right? Supposedly federal prosecutors that were appointed to your case in criminal court. And these prosecutors are not state prosecutors. So can you give us a little bit of a background about that? And I think when we last spoke, it was, you shared this, but I know that in your case, and a lot has unfolded in discovery about this private law firm that has been appointed as your public prosecutor. Can you give us the background about that, around that? And like, what's going on with that? Thank you for bringing that up. I mean, the big background is, you know, I was part of a legal team in Ecuador. We won this big environmental judgment against Chevron in 2011 in Ecuador's courts where Chevron wanted the trial held and where they accepted jurisdiction. And rather than pay the judgment, they began to attack me through a civil RICO statute here in the United States. They literally paid dozens of law firms, hundreds of lawyers to work on this. And they paid a witness, a Chevron paid its own witness $2 million. And he came into court and lied about me and claimed that I had bribed the trial judge in Ecuador. It's not true. And 29 other judges in Ecuador and Canada have affirmed the judgment in Ecuador against Chevron and rejected uh, Judge Kaplan. He's a U.S. judge here in New York. His opinion relying on this paid witness to claim that I bribed the judge in Ecuador. And there's just no evidence I did other than this man's word. And it's not credible. Um, He later admitted lying. But in any event, as we started to enforce the judgment around the world, Judge Kaplan let Chevron sue me again, claiming that I was not allowed to raise money from donors or investors to fund litigation expenses to enforce the judgment out of Ecuador that Chevron would not pay. And as part of that process, he ordered me to turn over my computer and cell phone to Chevron. When I resisted that, because my ethical duties as a lawyer prevent me from sharing confidential information with my adversary counsel, Judge Kaplan found me in contempt of court, charged me criminally, and had me locked up in my home. And he assigned the case to a friend of his who's a member of the Federalist Society, which is funded by Chevron. Her name is Loretta Preska. And she locked me up and will not let me out. She's denied my release four times. I wear an ankle bracelet 24-7. And I've now been here over six times longer than the longest sentence ever imposed on a lawyer in New York who's been convicted of criminal contempt. And I have not even had a trial. So as part of this bizarre process, Judge Kaplan was required by law to take his criminal contempt charges to the U.S. Attorney's Office for prosecution. And the U.S. attorney here in New York, known as the SDNY, rejected his charges and declined or refused to prosecute me. And Judge Kaplan then appointed a private law firm named Seward and Kissel, particularly a partner there named Rita Glavin, to prosecute me in the name of the government. And the reality is this is one of the only times in American history that a private law firm has prosecuted a individual in the name of the public after the charges were rejected by the regular 
prosecutor's office. I have and, a question about that. Yeah. What, what usually happens? What's the normal you know, chain of events when SDNY refuses to prosecute a case? Is the case it dropped? Away, it goes away. Just goes away. I mean, if the, if the you know prosecutors have discretion as to what cases they want to pursue, what cases they want to file charges on, what cases they don't want to file charges on, and it involves a number of factors, including the resources they have and the discretion and the priorities of the office, et cetera. And in my case, they just decided they were not going to take it. It was not a priority. And I think I'd like to think, oh, I don't know this for sure, that they looked at the charges and you know, had a lot of questions about them, as do I, because I don't think these are valid criminal charges. So Judge Kaplan, the, the, the contempt area of the law is very, so it's sort of a carve out where judges can file their own charges. You know, most charges get filed by prosecutors, that is by the executive branch, not the judicial branch, you know. So criminal laws are passed by the legislative branch, meaning Congress, um, charges are brought by the executive branch, meaning the U.S. Attorney's Office, and then the cases obviously are presided over by the judicial branch. So what's happened in this case is the same man, that is Judge Kaplan, who's a judge, basically filed the charges, meaning he he's acting both as a judge and an executive branch. And he's also overseeing the case along with Preska. He hasn't recused himself. So I have a two-headed judge and you know, so he's judge and prosecutor and also fact finder because they denied me a jury all on the same case. And that's not right. I mean, to me, that's a violation of the Constitution and should not be happening. But they're doing it anyway, and nobody has stopped it. And it gets worse because the prosecuting law firm, the Seward and Kissel law firm, disclosed seven months into the case and seven months after they insisted on my detention that they had Chevron as a client. So essentially, I'm being prosecuted by a Chevron law firm in a criminal case in the name of the government. And the Seward and Kissel firm that's prosecuting me, the Chevron law firm, is billing taxpayers by the hour, $300 an hour for their services. And they've already billed upwards of $500,000 to prosecute and detain me on a misdemeanor case where not a single other person in the country has ever been detained prior to trial in the federal system. So there's a lot of irregularities. I mean, I think it's improper on a lot of levels, but I'm still in home detention now awaiting trial. My trial, by the way, just got pushed back to May because of COVID. The courthouse is all but closed and there's no jury trials or even non-jury bench trials happening in New York right now. So you mentioned there's so many things I want to ask you about. One of them is you've got this private law firm prosecuting you. And a lot of things that you've said is that you're leaning towards judicial impropriety. And I've seen a lot of the filings and you've got a strong case that the prosecutors, the private prosecutors at Seward and Kissel are communicating with Judge Kaplan. So can you tell us about that kind of communication? And what do you think is actually really going on? What do you, I mean, I know that I've been following your case for a while. I've been a little bit involved and I'm I'm seeing that you're following the rules. You are literally following the rules. You're not stepping out of line. You're doing everything to the, by the book and you're following this legally. And I want to know on the other side, how they're stretching the bounds of judicial propriety. And like, what do you see is really going on here? Well, I think there's just a a concerted effort by Chevron, its law firms, and and Judge Kaplan, and now Judge Prescott to um, 
to undermine the Ecuador pollution judgment to help a U.S. company beat back a foreign court judgment. I mean, I'm kind of in the middle of it because I was the lawyer who played an instrumental role in securing that judgment out of Ecuador's courts. So, you know, they think by attacking me, they can somehow help, help Chevron not pay the judgment and I think send a larger, you know, symbolic message to the legal profession, to the environmental community that trying to discourage lawyers and activists from taking on these big corporate accountability cases that involve lots of money. So again, I, I just think there's a lot of hanky-panky going on here. I think there's a lot of intellectual dishonesty by these judges and locking me up. I mean, no other lawyer has ever been locked up for criminal contempt prior to trial, but me. Um, they locked me up just as I was working in other countries around the world, trying to enforce the judgment against Chevron. And you know, it's very obvious that Chevron's lawyers are working with the private prosecutor at this other Chevron law firm appointed to prosecute me, to detain me and to take my passport to prevent me from doing my work. It's a slap lawsuit. It's designed to silence dissent. And, you know, I think it violates my free speech rights. It violates the rights of really every American who believes you should be able to access justice in order to seek a remedy for people who are being, you know, having their human rights violated, as is the case with the indigenous people of Ecuador, who live on lands in the Amazon, onto which Chevron, via its predecessor company Texaco, literally dumped billions of gallons of toxic waste. So cancer-causing toxic oil waste, that is. If this were happening in Turkey or Russia or Saudi Arabia, under a normal U.S. government like the Obama administration or the Bush administration, it would be called out as a massive human rights violation, but it's now happening here in New York and it's very disturbing. So, you know, find me one other case where a lawyer has been detained by a private law firm that works for the oil and gas industry when that lawyer is that industry's main critic. It's just never happened before. And the fact that the oil industry, in this case, Chevron has been able to capture elements of our federal judiciary. So they're actually depriving their main litigation adversary in a civil case of his liberty is extremely concerning for just the nature of democracy and the nature of the rule of law or just for the rule of law in America. And as, a, as somebody who's not, I'm not in your shoes and I'm not involved in the case, I can see it's pretty obvious like the contempt charge has been used for decades to silence activists, to silence people who are challenging certain industry norms, let's say, and or political norms. I see your situation, Stephen, I see you as a political prisoner because this is, you are being charged, you're being uh, confined, you're a prisoner because of your political beliefs. You know, one could call them political beliefs, but it's clearly that this is political to me. And we have we have a new administration coming in. We have, there, there might be some shifting going on. If you had the opportunity, say, imagine that this is a phone call to a most important person or a, a person that you'd really want to have a conversation with, who would that be? And what would you, or you don't have to say who it would be, but what would you want to say? Like, what would you want to say to somebody who might have the influence to really see what's going on and help your case? Well, that's an interesting question. I haven't really thought about that, but I mean, I think that Look, if I could talk to someone influential who could solve this problem, I would. I just don't know who that person would be. You know, it could be Joe Biden after the 20th of January or Barack Obama or the Pope or just any person with a moral conscience, you know. But I think it's a mistake to sort of think this whole problem can be solved with the intervention of a single individual. The rule of law 
operates in a way that it shouldn't be subject to the whims or the objectives or the work of any one person. I mean, it should function neutrally. So facts and law are looked at dispassionately, and that's not what has happened here. So I think there's a major process problem where the system is broken down and is dysfunctional in this particular case. We've also seen that in other cases like Roger Stone's case and Michael Flynn's and so many other cases, excuse me, where the Justice Department and a President Trump has inappropriately intervened in pending legal cases. So, you know, it's it's a complicated question. All I can say is I think the, the way this problem is going to be solved is there needs to be a massive public scrutiny of my case and involvement in this situation. I mean, we have, can I mention our website? We have a website called donzigerdefense.com where you can learn more about it, get articles, sign up for our campaign. We've literally had thousands and thousands of people around the United States and the world who've signed up and who have sent emails to different people trying to, you know, call attention to the problems in this process, including 55 Nobel laureates and hundreds of lawyers around the world, including the International Association of Democratic Lawyers, a big UN-affiliated lawyers group. So, you know, we need help, we need support, we need outcry, we need scrutiny. We also have a trial, two trial monitoring committees that are monitoring my trial to make sure it adheres to requirements of due process under international law. And both of those monitoring committees have been highly critical of Judge Preska and Judge Kaplan for what they've done to me. And this is the kind of public scrutiny that a lot of the American federal judges are not used to having. And I think Judge Kaplan, who's really driving this to a great degree, has calculated that he can do this and I think abuse his power and get away with it because no one's going to be watching. And we've tried to change that dynamic. A massive number of people are watching. And I think the the narrative has definitely changed from the beginning, such that people truly understand what's going on. And I think that helps me a lot. It gives me and my family hope gives my clients in Ecuador hope. So, you know, I think we're going to be okay, but we need as much support as we can get. And again, you can go to donzigerdefense.com. By the way, that's a, a, a website where people can donate money to support the case, support legal expenses, as well as help me pay my household expenses. I live in New York with my wife and son, and I've been deprived of an ability to earn an income now for, you know, almost two years as a result of this detention. So, we're looking for support, but you know, I know times are tough for many people. If you cannot support financially, just go to the site anyway, learn more about the case, and you can sign up for the campaign and we'll get your regular emails on what's happening. Yeah, and we'll put those links in the show notes as well. Stephen, you know, this trial monitoring committee is the concept of a trial monitoring committee. You know, you'd see this in foreign countries, international committees forming and going into places like Syria to monitor what looks like a corrupt judicial system. And it was after our last podcast interview uh, episode where we spoke in the summer that the monitoring committees actually kicked off because I had reached out to the American Bar Association and asked if they could take your case because they have the, the Center for, for Human Rights through the American Bar Association has a trial monitoring initiative. And on their website, it was only countries like Syria and I don't even know all the countries, but it was all foreign countries. And they said they couldn't take it because 
they don't do domestic cases. And I'm like, but it's the American Bar Association. And so there sparked this, you know, the momentum. And now there are two, two independent uh, monitoring committees. It's interesting because what we're seeing is totally not something you would see and you think you wouldn't see in the United States. And we know that these things happen and they've happened for, you know, decades, especially to indigenous and people of color. And here you are, you're this attorney and you are you know, playing by the rules 100% and you are subject to this smoke and mirrors game, basically, that is, it just feels like this is a never ending uh, imprisonment. And so what I'm curious about, and, and they there was actually, they intended to have the trial before May, right? It was your te- legal team that asked to postpone because you wouldn't be able to have witnesses, right? They, you were going to be the first criminal trial, like no other trials were happening, but it was so important to have your trial, even regardless that you couldn't have your witnesses or even your attorneys present. It would be some kind of Zoom situation or, you know, vi- virtual situation. So with all of this kind of just this chaos right now is what from outside looks like chaos. Where do you see, like I said, this, I asked you this before, like who, who would you ask if you had one phone call to ask? But really, where do you see the tipping point? I know that you've had a lot of different involvement. You've got this public outcry. You've got different trial monitoring committees. You've got amazing legal team and so many different people helping along the way. But where do you really see the tipping point? Is it having Preska or Kaplan recused? What do you see? Is is it Seward Kissel having to recuse themselves? What do you think could be a tipping point for your case? Well, I think the tipping point's out there, and I think this case needs to be dismissed, and I need to be allowed to return to my work. This is not a legitimate case in my view. I don't think a judge should have the unfettered power to charge a lawyer based on what he charged me with, which was basically a civil discovery dispute with Chevron over a computer and cell phone that's currently under appeal. It's unclear if the order was even lawful. It's being decided by the appellate court and he's charging me with criminal contempt while the the appellate court has the issue in its hands. Never happened before in American history, as far as we can tell. Never before has a lawyer been put in detention pretrial for criminal contempt. There's all sorts of weird things happening here, but I think the tipping point comes when I can get an unbiased judge and that judge hopefully can look at this and I think would dismiss this whole case, you know, but right now I don't have an unbiased judge. I have two judges who are completely committed to helping Chevron destroy me. It's pretty obvious from their rulings, from the fact that they charge this criminally when the conduct is not justified to be charged that way. It's the crazy, you know, detention for almost two years now on a misdemeanor without a trial. This is a massive human rights violation, in my view. If this was in another country, again, it would be seen that way. And it is seen that way by many people in the United States and around the world. It's a very poor reflection, you know, not only on these judges, but on on our federal judiciary as a whole in the eyes of the world. So, you know, the tipping point has to come when these charges get resolved and I can move on with my life. And as importantly, if not more importantly, the thousands of indigenous peoples down in Ecuador's Amazon, with whom I've been working for many years, can get their judgment enforced and Chevron will pay damages such that they can do a proper cleanup of the billions of gallons of cancer-causing oil waste that have been deliberately dumped onto their ancestral lands by Chevron over a period of many years. I see the future. I think we can get there. Um, I think that these judges and Chevron are trying to block that 
vision or our vision from happening. I think that what they're doing is undermining the rule of law. I think it's a human rights violation. And I'm hoping other judges and courts with the help of the public will see it and exercise their authority to stop it, stop it from continuing. And that tipping point, I hope will come and come soon. Yeah. What you, you know, what you just said, I mean, it's hard because this is your life is literally your life is on hold or consumed with this. And yet what this is really about is poisoned Amazon territory. It's poisoned water. It's poisoned the forests. It's people's lives. And many people have died because of this, right? The, the contamination. And that's what this is about. And so how are we talking about a Green New Deal? How are we talking about climate justice or even preventing climate change? How can you help people connect the dots on what you're experiencing and this kind of critical mass towards environmental justice and climate justice and a Green New Deal? Well, that's a great question. And there are dots and they should be connected. Look, the planet is slowly being destroyed by the very industry I'm fighting against, the oil industry, the fossil fuel industry writ large. You know, the Chevrons of the world don't care about saving the planet. I mean, they their business is to make money from fossil fuels, which are destroying the planet. So Anyone like me or another human rights lawyer or an organization that gets in the way of that and is effective at it is going to get attacked by it. And that's what's happened to me. But trust me when I say this, if you don't have cadres of lawyers and activists and campaigners who are willing to take on this industry, then our planet has no chance. And the attacks on me are an attempt to stop this work. They don't want people doing this work effectively. We had an international legal team. We raised financing. We worked for many, many years to get into the ball game with Chevron. And they have, you know, they've used 60 law firms and 2,000 lawyers against us. You know, over the years, we've used 20 to 50 lawyers, depending on what people are working on. So there's been a total inequality of arms and an asymmetry of resources. But despite that, we're able to win the case. And it's been affirmed by 29 different judges, and including the entire high courts of Ecuador and Canada, on the merits of for enforcement purposes. And Chevron can't handle that. So they're attacking the lawyers, in particular me. But trust me when I say this. I mean, an attack on one is an attack on all. That's what Lauren Regan, who's one of my lawyers, says. She works for the Civil Liberties Defense Center in Oregon. And it's totally true. They're attacking me and they're attacking the very idea of advocacy, First Amendment advocacy against the fossil fuel industry writ large. They don't want people doing this work. And they think by destroying me, people will be intimidated from entering a field where these companies can truly be held accountable. So it's all connected. And the ability to advocate, to get to court, to get access to justice, to get a remedy for people who are vulnerable is absolutely necessary to arrest global warming to such a degree that our societies can be saved and you know the earth can become sustainable again. So that's what ultimately this is about, in addition to the fact that there's thousands of people dying in the Ecuador's Amazon because of their exposures to Chevron's toxic dumping, who need immediate relief so their lives can be saved and their health can be restored. And I just want to add, I want to add to that, Stephen, around connecting the dots, there's a lot of people focused on solutions right now, right? Solutions to climate change, solutions to regenerative 
agriculture, regenerative forestry. There's a lot of solution-oriented businesses popping up left and right and, and people. And that's how they're choosing their activism. I see a big gap, though, in being willing to connect to the stopping of the engine that is extracting. You can't just continue to regenerate while there's this huge engine that is continuing in the background and you're you're stuck in that engine right now. It's, it includes the judicial system. So just add to that, that for folks focused on regenerative and you know the solutions to climate change, it really is important to be very mindful of these issues. People often separate the activism out, that it's like this activist thing that's kind of negative and fighting against versus the creation of something new. And I think that for this to really work, we all need to come together, <laughs> right? And so I'm speaking right now to all the folks who are focused on the, the solutions, that one of the solutions is actually looking at a case like Stevens and how the defenders, the human rights and environmental defenders are being thwarted in the work that is so important to stop the, the engine of extraction. And Stephen, you're one of my superheroes in this. And I know it doesn't feel so great to be a superhero when you're under a confinement. If I were you, I would have ripped that thing off my ankle a long time ago. So kudos to you. Well, I guess one last question I would ask you is for those people who want to do the good fight, but who understand it's a really scary territory out there that they run the risk of being imprisoned for standing up for injustice. What's one nugget of wisdom you'd want to share with them? Well, just, you know, people need to, in my view, just keep perspective, right? I mean, I'm hardly the first person attacked in this way. There's there's other lawyers around the world who get attacked, even murdered or put in prison for many, many years without charges. So, you know, the phenomenon of powerful corporate actors or, you know, corrupt governments attacking truth tellers and people who stand up to entrenched interests is hardly new. I think what's a little bizarre about it is that it's happening in the United States to a, a lawyer, a credible lawyer who does human rights work. I mean, look, there's tons of problems, as we know, in our U.S. justice system, race issues and you know, mass incarceration. We get all that. This is kind of a new animal. And, you know, the idea that a corporate accountability lawyer could be detained in this way is the first of a kind kind of thing. And it, I think it really signifies the extent to which corporate control of our political system and our judiciary is expanding. But you just have to keep fighting, be resilient, be hopeful, build solidarity, as I've tried to do, and, you know, be optimistic and, and understand that you got to play the long game and, and not be all kind of distracted by the day-to-day -day attacks and stuff, because ultimately, you know, one has to recognize these attacks against me are happening precisely because the communities in Ecuador won the case, not because they lost the case. You know, they would not be doing this if they didn't feel threatened by what we have accomplished. They didn't feel that there was enormous financial risk from the judgment. They feel all of that. And they just decided they're trying to blow it up by attacking the lawyers. And, you know, they found a sympathetic judge in New York to help them to a degree I never anticipated. And I hope never happens again in our society. But, you know, my advice is just do what you can in, in the place where you are to help make the world a better place and to help save our, you know, the planet for our children and our children's children and so on. You know, that's what people need to do. And everybody's got their own personal decision to make about how they want to approach that question and, and what they think they can do either in their community or in kind of in a larger scale. 
And, you know, there's a space for everyone to work in this area to do good things. And I encourage people to think about what they can do. Thank you so much. Thank you, Stephen, for doing the work and holding down this fort. I encourage everybody listening to follow Stephen on Twitter at S. Donziger, and I will add that link to the show notes as well, and visit his website, uh, donzigerdefense.com. And also recognizing that Chevron has wiped out your finances, right? What they do, like freeze your accounts or yeah. you had to pay legal fees. Yeah, mm-hmm. I mean, imagine being sued by Chevron for $60 billion, even though that those punitive damages have been deleted still. Imagine receiving that that complaint against you one day, right? $60 billion. So folks, this is just a horrible situation. I really encourage everybody to check out Stephen's feed on Twitter because you can really get caught up and donzigerdefense.com. And I continue to share your content and I'm continuing to support you, Stephen. So thank you for being here again today. And hopefully the next time you're back on here, we are celebrating your release. The charges have been dropped. You are free and Preska and Kaplan are being charged. Stephanie, thank you for your support. It means a lot to me. You've been, you know, just a wonderful friend and colleague throughout this situation. And I look forward to continuing to to hear from you and collaborate with you on all sorts of things to, to help move this forward. So thank you again. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for joining us on this episode of Catalyst Talks. Stay tuned for what's up next and please subscribe to our podcast and rate us wherever you listen. You'll find these all at catalysttalks.com. Join the conversation on social media. And if you'd like to reach out, please send me, Stephanie, a private message through stephanietraker.com. Your attention means the world to me. Thank you, thank you, thank you.